1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Book Network podcast. I am Deidre Tyler, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Tatiana D. McInnes, author of To Tell a Black Story of Miami. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for asking and for having me. Thank you. Can you start by telling us a little something about yourself and how you became interested in this project?
0: absolutely so i'm currently an instructor at the north carolina school of science and math Um, my background is in in english so my phd is in english which i earned in 2017 from vanderbilt university Um, and that was really the starting point for the book as it now exists um i took and i i read a little bit about this in the introduction to the book um i took several classes that in my opinion would have been really enriched if Miami had been represented within the curricula and Miami was not represented. So I took um, Caribbean studies, I took a Southern studies class, um, and I took an ideas of Black culture class all in my first year of graduate school. Um, and in each of those classes, I was looking for Miami, which is my hometown. Um, so of course, I have that, that personal bias. Um, but I really believe that some of our intellectual work could have been invigorated by taking Miami seriously. Um, And so that's what I committed to doing um, for, you know, the duration of working on the book or I should say the dissertation that turned into the manuscript that is now the book um, was my effort to take Miami seriously as a site of cultural critique.
1: Well, tell us about your methodology in writing the book, the stories you used.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think the methodology was if I were to articulate it in a sentence, would be using first-person accounts of experiences of South Florida and putting those in conversation with historical documents that document the material realities of South Florida. So it's a lot of humanizing some of those more data points about history um, and, you know, things like urban renewal and gentrification with people who are writing about seeing these things happen happening and living through them um and i would add you know another methodological value that i had in mind for the book was making sure that black creators and black artists were at the center of what i was doing Um, so really working to amplify their insights and critiques of the material realities of south florida
1: You talk about the massive wave of immigration in the South Florida area. Dr. McGinnis, tell us about this. Sure. So I, you know, my parents
0: really lived through it. And so I think I heard a lot about it from them um, growing up in that area and, you know, just being in South Florida and seeing the kind of consequences of these massive waves of immigration. I think primarily the book takes up Cuban immigration, which of course happened with Fidel Castro's rise to power. um, And a lot of people in Cuba, especially wealthy white Cubans, fleeing the kind of communist uh, shift in Cuba. Um, So that's one major wave of immigration that has had an ongoing mark on South Florida. So beginning from the late 1950s, um, then we have a kind of peak in, you know, peak between 1950 and about 1962. We have another peak in the early 80s, and then we have a peak in the mid-1990s that really comes to shape South Florida's cultural terrain. And I think when we think about Miami, we often think about Cuban immigration, but it was really important to me to center and represent other forms of immigration that preceded Cuban immigration. So I talk a lot about Bahamian immigration into Miami, which was honestly um, so that happens kind of early 20th century, late 19th century, um, and that's the that's the immigration that built the about the, built the city as we know it today, right? The, that that um, most of South Florida's infrastructure was built on the backs of Black Bahamian labor. Um, so I wanted to kind of bring that um, that history of immigration and Black immigration into Florida to the forefront. Um, so. Talk a lot about that within the text, and then of course um, Haitian immigration. And I was really interesting, interested, and Haitian immigration I would historicize between about the 1970s um, into the early 2000s is kind of the focus of the text. Um, and I was really interested in mapping out comparatively what those experiences of immigration looked like for those different demographics and and mapping out how race and of course specifically blackness shapes your experience when you come into a place that is so um new uh, but also so polarized as South Florida as it was
1: you know f- throughout the throughout the 20th century you talk about the winter playground how has this changed the scope in the population of Miami
0: yeah, I um, especially I would say coming at your question maybe from a different angle as someone who grew up in South Florida and seeing tourists come in and kind of like release their inhibitions when they visit South Florida and take advantage of its sort of, of of its location, right? So it's its weather, it's the beaches, but its proximity to the Caribbean. So kind of going to the Caribbean without leaving the United States. So I grew up with a lot of people having, I would say, very flat conceptions of South Florida. That was based on party vibe and vacation energy. Um, and so I think that's one valence of the winter playground kind of coming into play. But I would also say it is a lot of the reason that emigres stay there, right? Um, is It is so culturally and um, in terms of climate similar to places in the Caribbean um, and other kind of port cities globally that people make a home there. Um, and so that both has the sort of benefits of the cultural richness of South Florida, which I have come to appreciate, especially after leaving there. Um, But it also comes with the consequence of some nostalgia, which I take up in the chapter about Cuban immigration, where I talk talk about Carlos Yed's work, um, where there's this effort to rebuild, you know, pre-1959 Cuba in South Florida and make it just like, um the place of their imagination i think that's another valence of the winter playground that comes to bear on the immigrant populations that live there
1: cultural linguistic diversity can you describe how many different languages in is this confusing that's a great question i don't find it confusing because i think it
0: Um, If we take seriously that Miami and South Florida as a region is a culturally diverse region, then it would make sense that there would be so much linguistic diversity within um, that region. And I um, am of the mind that broadly within the United States, we are kept largely ignorant. And a lot of that to me is because we don't speak multiple languages. Um, And sometimes look down at people who speak multiple languages and then try to learn English and speak with an accent um, or struggle with the grammatical rules of English. Um, I will say for my part, growing up and hearing regularly Spanish and different kinds of Spanish, right? So Cuban Spanish is not Puerto Rican Spanish, it's not Colombian Spanish, it's not Nicaraguan Spanish. Um, And being able to, you know, communicate with people and learn from them through their languages was an immense privilege. Um, And I think there is, you know, the misconception that everyone speaks Spanish in South Florida. And that's not true. A lot of people speak French um, and speak Haitian Creole. Increasingly, folks speak Vietnamese um, and other languages within the Asian diaspora. And I think we are all richer for it, for learning from each other um, in different languages, which, of course, as I would tell my students,
1: changes how we see the world. What about the global city? Tell us about Miami. Uh, you talk about citizens born outside of the U.S. How is Miami a global city?
0: I think Miami is a global city in several ways, right? I think if we're thinking um, in terms of commerce and you know the movement of goods, our proximity to Latin America means that we have quite literally, products and things and material objects that circulate in South Florida that come from someplace else. I think we also, of course, have people who come from someplace else. It's a majority-minority region, right? So a lot of people increasingly, I think at the time that the book was published, it's about 51% of people who live in South Florida were not born in the United States. So it's global in that capacity. I think it's global also in terms of the stories that those folks bring. Right. Coming from a country that is not here, bringing values and stories and material objects and culture um, with you transforms the city. Um, And I think Miami is a city that has more so than any other place in the country, I would argue, has has made itself amenable to change um, from people who are bringing, again, objects and stories from other places.
1: Well, talking about those stories, can you give us an example of one of the stories that really reflected Miami?
0: Oh, there's so many. I think that's really hard for me to answer um, because so much of the book uh, and the process of writing the book was like, you know, I've got this story, but there's also this story that I could talk about and, and so on and so forth. But I guess like to actually answer the question, the chapter that I am Potentially proudest of um, would be the first chapter, which is about Patricia Stevens Dew and Reeves Dew. So it's their collaboratively authored memoir called Freedom in the Family, um, and I would say their stories, plural, um, are very representative of South Florida, both in the 1950s and 60s and 70s, which is the time frame that they're writing in and about but also the present day um Patricia Stevens sue in particular so she's the maternal figure and then Tanana Du is her daughter um, Patricia Stevens sue was a civil rights activist she grew up in i want to say glade florida and then um you know trained with uh, core so the congress on racial equality in miami in overtown in particular and then went to tallahassee and used what she had learned um, from Overtown or from the training in Overtown to pioneer the jailin technique, and I, you know, my favorite story, I guess, of of doing this research is finding her papers in the state archives um, in Tallahassee, and she's got a telegram from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Um, thanking her for her work in the jailin, in the sit-ins and the jailins in Tallahassee. And I think that that's just such a great representation of the vibrant civil rights work that was happening in South Florida that is often not talked about or or thought about when we think about the civil rights movement. And so I would say that story of, you know, one, her writing about the experience of hearing from Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And then, you know, as a reader Reading that and then going as a researcher and finding the evidence that that had transpired um, and putting that into conversation with this broader history of Miami, um, I think that's one of my favorite moments and certainly one of my favorite stories of things that happened in or were inspired by things that happened from my hometown.
1: Chapter one, to tell a story of Black Miami civil rights. What did you find about the struggle for equality that you didn't know
0: um i think i discovered um in a more emotional and um moving way the long-term scars of freedom fighters right and so um if folks haven't read the chapter i conclude Um, or getting towards the conclusion of the chapter I talk about um, the gathering and in the text it's the gathering so everything is capitalized and it's given this sort of air of austerity which I I just find so beautiful but it's actually so devastating because you've got folks um, you know older black folks who are remembering their their work um, to create a more equitable world um, and the violence that they endured. Right. And so people who are traumatized in terms of physical confrontations with the police or, and or other white supremacist groups. Um, you've got folks and Patricia Stevens, who has this gorgeous line of, you know, there are so many people who are not here, not because they are not with us in terms of being alive, but because they cannot bear the thought of revisiting such a painful part of their experiences, and they weren't ready to talk about it. And so having it um, articulated that way within that text, and then again, going back to the archival research and seeing pictures of these folks at the gathering and and seeing the brochures for the gathering, just really added some emotional weight um, that I don't think I could have experienced in another way. So less like, information gathering or things that were new to me but certainly an emotional experience that was very new to me in the course of doing my
1: research chapter two the anti-haitian tell us about the book you use or the articles children of the sea and brother i'm dying to describe their stories what did you find out about that experience
0: yeah that's um so the second chapter eight anti-haitian hydra um was one of my favorite chapters I think uh probably not supposed to say this but it's certainly I think it's the strongest chapter within the book um and so I use Edwidge Danticat's Brother I'm Dying um which is another family memoir her short story Children of the Sea and then M.J. Fievre's short story um Sinkhole that and I love all of them um and You know, just like a brief kind of description. So Brother I'm Dying is about Jean Chantacott and her father and her uncle. So her paternal uncle and their experiences of trying to get out of Haiti and living in New York, but also living in Miami and kind of navigating that. And of course, her uncle um, ends up at Chrome Detention Center um, in South Florida and dies there Um, or you know, is very becomes very unwell there in a sense of the hospital where he dies. Um, and then her short story, Children of the Sea, is um during the, you know, violent er- era of Duvalier in Haiti, where, you know, he weaponized the Tonton Macut, um, who just, you know, kind of created this regime of terror in Haiti and triggered lots of emigration. Um, and so it's written as an epistolary short story between Two protagonists, the woman, um, woman partner, female partner, I should say, who stays behind in Haiti, is imagining letters to her partner who is on a boat um, trying to get to Miami and the boat sinks. Um, And so it's told in their um, perspective of these imagined conversations that this couple is having um, throughout diaspora and within the violence of, you know, Haitian, a Haitian dictatorship. Um, And I would say... the the last story by Fievre is so um, distinct from the other ones because it's imagining a sinkhole in Little Haiti that um, quite literally sucks up a wealthy Haitian-American man. Um, And the story is about gentrification and the erasure of Little Haiti. Um, And so my goal in putting all those texts together was to just sort of trace, you know, as the title suggests, how perpetual it is to experience anti-blackness and compounding that with an anti-haitian sentiment um that is both you know deeply deeply miami specific but it's also nationally specific and globally specific um and i would say in terms of like my biggest lesson for that chapter um understanding the violence of chrome detention center Um, And what happens there and learning more about that site of violence, that would be my biggest takeaway. And so that would be um, lessons that I learned from Brother I'm Dying um, and lessons that I learned from trying to historicize that text and understand Chrome Detention Center a little bit more.
1: Chapter three, Becoming Whiteness, Rejecting Blackness. You talk about the simulation routes that were available to lighter-complected immigrants. Mm -hmm. Tell us more.
0: Um, Yeah, I think that chapter for me was one of the more difficult and challenging chapters to write because it is one of the only chapters, there's two within the book, that use whiteness and white supremacy and white people as a point of contrast to help us better understand what Black folks are experiencing um, diasporically. And I just learned about white supremacy's evolutionary capacity with that chapter and thinking about specifically Cuban, white Cuban emigres from late 1950s to early 1960s and the ease of access that they had to the resources in this country um, and how that compared to the, you know, utter and devastating anti-blackness that carlos Moore experienced which i outlined within that chapter and his experience of coming from poverty in cuba to poverty in the united states as compared to wealth in cuba which is carlos yerra's experience to wealth in the united states um i think it just made very evident for me how powerful white supremacy is um, perhaps especially when you are emigrating into the United States. It's like whiteness functions as a passport,
1: almost. Chapter 4, Who Speaks for Miami? Talk about the images that are portrayed, violence, drugs, and the demographics. How What's going on in Chapter 4?
0: Yeah, so Chapter 4 is about... Um, what i would argue are the most commonly represented images of south florida and those are scarface so the um i think the film came out in 1983 or 1982 um right after the Madiel boat lift. um and it is tony montana's rise to fame uh or infamy i should say pretty infamous um and wealth as a you know violent drug dealer um, who came from Cuba and was you know, for to believe what he says was incarcerated in Cuba as a political prisoner, um, and then comes to the u s and kind of continues um a a life of violence and a life of crime. so I, I would I would say that's a really prominent representation of South Florida that's very salient for people. And then Miami Vice, um, and I do the series. Um, from the 1980s. I do not do the film remake. Um, those productions are coming right after the Mario Boatlift. And that was, to date, one of the more ethnically and racially mixed waves of emigration that we have from Cuba. Those emigres, um, they were pejoratively referred to as the Marielitos. I just refer to them as folks who came over in the Mario Boatlift. Um, they were contrasted with earlier waves of immigration um, from Cuba, which were whiter, came from upper middle class, more professional um, folks, more folks who spoke English um, in the late 1950s and 1960s. So that characterizes that wave of immigration. And then in the 1980s, it was, you know, to put it bluntly, more black folks, more mixed race folks. Um Laboring folks, folks who had been incarcerated in Cuba, um for a number of reasons, during that time period in Cuba, you could be incarcerated for being queer. Um And so they, you know, from the jump, that that wave of emigration was just lambasted in local media. And, you know, my argument for the chapter is like white, and it's mostly white, you know, producers and screenwriters and directors were obsessed um with you know the the overblown representation of this this group of emigres of emigres and they used um you know mostly white folks to white folks in brown face uh as is the case with al pacino um to represent their anxieties about this wave of immigration, um but still make it sexy um and so my kind of investment in that chapter is like the sort of violent fantasies that white folks conjured up about Miami during this time period because they were frankly scared of massive waves of immigration of black and brown people into this country um so doing a little bit of work to kind of historicize and more accurately represent and respond to Scarface and Miami Vice
1: chapter five you talk about black masculinity in Miami Tell us about the complexities there.
0: Sure. So I would say that chapter is about how gender and race and, you know, gender discrimination and racism um, against Black men compounds um, and trying to kind of understand the ways that urban blight and um, systemic violence and divestment in neighborhoods uh, shakes out across gender lines. Um, I love that chapter probably because Moonlight is my favorite movie of all time. Um, and so having that, uh, that protagonist. Um, so the protagonist in Moonlight, his name is Chiron. um navigate urban blight in you know in liberty city um and in other black majority spaces in south florida um and not be able to be vulnerable because he's poor um and because he's black um that was something that i was really interested in digging more into um and thinking about how systemic things like uh urban renewal or systemic things like gentrification or systemic things like redlining and segregation, how they come to bear on our personal um emotional and intellectual development. And I think Chiron as a protagonist is such a great case study of that phenomenon. And to have him as a fictional protagonist read alongside the very real experiences of the folks in dogfight who were doing a sort of unsanctioned um street fighting um ring or uh, club or kind of organization um so to have the kind of material experiences represented in that documentary alongside moonlight um to really trace this phenomena of black men really only be- being given the option to fight um or to engage in what is coded as criminal acts in order to survive um that was just something that i was really interested in and i you know so much of the text uh, as in my book has threads of investigating gender identity right i talk about patricia Stevens erasure um because she was a woman within the civil rights movement um there's so much um that i'm interested in, in reproduction and the anti-haitian hydra Um, So, like, culminating in the final chapter um, where I have this very explicit investigation of gender identity and masculinity, it just felt like a, and and of queerness, of course, Um, it just felt like a really great way to end the book, I should say, or partially end the book, at least the last chapter, not the code
1: What did you learn about social class in doing this project? Oh, overall, I,
0: I think I learned a lot about my own positionality as someone who um, was born into the middle class and who grew up in South Florida, but I did not grow up in the neighborhoods that I write about um, and really wanted to approach these neighborhoods with humility, even though I am black and take tremendous pride in being a black person um, and growing up in the South as a black person that is tremendously important to me and it is certainly a facet of my identity. I am not um, low income. I am not poor. I have not um, had the material divestment um, be so visible in my pleasant in my in my in my pleasant, I should say pleasant, but in my everyday life. And so I learned so much about, the systems that subject people who look like me, and I learned about my own privilege um, in undertaking those investigations. And I also,, um, you know, this is kind of tangential or just only indirectly answering the question, but I really learned a tremendous amount of gratitude to the storytellers um that I take up who, have endured and and, and suffered and uh, lived through and survived and thrived in circumstances that I've been very privileged not to have to experience. Um, so I learned a lot about humility um, and I learned a lot about the material world and how it impacts our social interactions. I'd say.
1: In your opinion, do you think Miami is the future of America in terms of the diversity?
0: 100 percent um i would say that on my more optimistic days i think miami and south florida are representative of a more diverse future i unfortunately also think that they um that florida generally as a state but south florida in particular teaches us a lot about white backlash to diversity um i think that you know with desantis um who's the current governor of south florida and is on a campaign against critical race theory and black studies in schools and just um, has really kind of advanced his platform on censorship and specifically censorship of black and brown voices within academia, not even mentioning some of the other things that he's doing in Florida. And I think, you know, that other folks are doing across the South. I think that is very reflective to me of a future, um, a future where there is the potential for diversity and learning with and from each other uh, within and across our differences, um, and the virulent kind of backlash against um, that possibility. Um, And all of that to me is anchored within white supremacy. So I think it is, um, again, on my optimistic days, it is diversity and potential community and equity and collaboration and on my negative my negative and more pessimistic days, it is a reminder that, you know, there is still a white supremacist infrastructure that will shut that down. Um, and usually on the state level.
1: Well, what is the overall message you want the reader to leave with once they finish your book?
0: I really appreciate that question. I would say I would like folks who are visiting Miami as tourists um, and as consumers of its winter playground reputation to look a little bit more closely um, and to travel and to take up space in Miami a bit more respectfully, I think especially respectfully of the black folks who built the city and continue to survive in it. Um, and, you know, if I were to answer that question with my students in mind, Um, I would invite them and invite everybody to really sit with place. Um, Wherever we are from is, you know, a combination of land and stories. And if we approach it as such, we stand to be hopefully more ethical and compassionate people.
1: Well, I've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell the audience about the next project you'll be working on? Oh, gosh, I am taking a break
0: um, for now, but I do know that the next project is going to be about the AIDS crisis, um, and I don't know yet what form that will take, but I specifically want to talk about the disappeared stories of Black and Latino folks who were lost to us, and I would say that's me putting it a bit passively, who were condemned to death because of Satan action during the HIV and AIDS crisis. Um so that's kind of the the brainchild right now. But again, taking a little bit of a break before I start research for that next project.
1: Well, we'll be looking forward to that. Thank well, you. we have been talking with Dr. Tatiana D. McInnes, the author of To Tell a Black Story of Miami. Thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me. I really
0: appreciate it.